You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So you probably heard there's a war on Christmas. It's just not the war on Christmas you hear about on cable television or the one the language police of Christian culture argues about on Twitter. There is a war, but it's not quite the war we think, and it's less about the Christmas we all know and love. Yeah, the gospel writers tell us that in Bethlehem, the Christmas we all know and love is happening. It involves a baby, a manger, Joseph, Mary, angels, a bright and shining star, and lowly shepherds. And this is a Christmas we celebrate in school plays and the one we think about when we decorate our Christmas trees and hang our stockings on our chimney with care. It's the sights and sounds of the Christmas that feels so good when you walk around Bush Gardens at Christmas and lights or stroll about Colonial Williamsburg during Grand Illumination. We love this Christmas so much that it actually offends us a bit when others want to take Christ out of Christmas. And so we draw lines in the sands of social media as we post, keep Christ in Christmas memes all over the place. Share with people or if you love Jesus. Yeah, that stuff. But the truth is, what we love most about Christmas is only part of the story. See, Matthew and Luke do not want us to miss the larger story of Christmas, the one that we've come to call the Advent. And when we take a look at the whole story of Christmas, it's easy to see that it's less a war on Christmas and more about a war with Christmas, and it's happening inside of each one of us. See, the gospel writers tell us that As Christmas is happening in Bethlehem, Christmas also involves a crazy king that rules over Jerusalem. He has privilege with Rome, position in Jerusalem, and power over the Jews, and he wants to keep it all. He goes by the name of Herod the Great. Like all people of privilege, position, and power, his most pressing concern is keeping it. And there's nothing kings like less than the threat of another king. Herod the Great wants nothing less but to remain great. Christmas also involves a a young unmarried couple trying to avoid scandal and excommunication from their religion. It's about a young peasant girl named Mary who receives a word from a heavenly messenger that she would actually give birth to the long-awaited king all the prophets had promised. It's a song she sings, a song of contemplation and celebration, a song of protest and prophecy. We call it Mary's Magnificat. It's the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. And it's so revolutionary, this song, and so politically charged that centuries later, this song would be banned from being read or prayed in public in various and different governments, three within the past century alone. See, around 1857, the British in India, under the East India Company, banned the Magnificat from being sung in monasteries. 
Because they knew that getting the natives stirred up with ideas of the hungry being fed and the poor lifted up and the rich and powerful overthrown and sent away empty might not go well for their British takeover. It's written that in the 1980s, Guatemala's government discovered Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor to be too dangerous and revolutionary. So much so that they believed that this song could inspire Guatemala's impoverished people, and it did. But they banned it. It's written that in Argentina, their militia outlawed any public display of Mary's song when after the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared during the Dirty War of 76-83, placed the Magnificat's words on posters throughout the plaza of the capital. See, this song of scandal and revolution, well, it goes like this, Luke tells us. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He took notice of His lowly servant girl. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy and He has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear Him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones, our conceited ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalts the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. See, it's in the Bible. It's there. Now, we're not always culturally conditioned to read it as it was always read. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't have a problem reading it for what it was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who resisted Hitler's Nazi Third Reich and particularly Hitler's version of Protestant Christianity, his sort of German Lutheranism that he tried to push upon all of the people to justify the genocide of a people. Bonhoeffer, the theologian and pastor, dissented from that group of 17,000 pastors. He was only one of just a handful of a hundred to do so. And he started what was called the Confessing Church. And one day during a sermon, he was preaching on an Advent Sunday in 1933. He said this about the song. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song is a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. Dr. Scott McKnight, theologian, one of my professors, has suggested that Mary's Magnacot was to oppress Jews what the song We Shall Overcome was for the oppressed black men and women during the civil rights. 
The Magnificat is a song about how God will bring down all earthly kingdoms from sea to shining sea and from princes to presidents, and only one kingdom will stand actually forever. Mary sings about how God will scatter the prideful and powerful and side with the poor, filling them with good things. Her Magnificat is not a nursery rhyme for a baby, but it's a war cry for a Savior King. It was a prophetic song about what God will do in the advent of Jesus, as if he had already done them in the past. And it was a prophetic song that when we look at it now, tells us that God's justice is working itself out before our very eyes because the King has come. He is making right what has been made wrong. See, the first Christmas was not celebrated with discounts from merchants and merriment from governments committed to honoring the Christ of Christmas. Yes, there was gold and frankincense and myrrh, but there was also pain and blood and tears in the first Christmas. See, because the first Christmas includes that Herod the Great who ordered a genocide. Christmas is young mothers from Bethlehem to Jerusalem clinging to their babies, boys, as the soldiers storm into their homes with knives in their hands. Christmas is fathers feeling helpless with no way to stop the executive order to have their sons murdered. Christmas is Mary and Joseph fleeing their home by way of the angels to escape the executive order and becoming refugees to escape from Bethlehem to Egypt, not knowing if they would ever ever, ever be able to return. There was a war with Christmas from the beginning, but it's always been. See, the prophet Isaiah once said in Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of the ancestors David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. It's a strange way to figure. But see, this war with Christmas, as dark as it is in the text as well, actually becomes our hope. See, Christmas is the story of God as the coming one who disrupts and disorders the world as we know it for the sake of a new world that is breaking in before our very eyes. A world that's actually in line with the realities of the coming future of God. Jesus, as Israel's king, proclaimed that the kingdom would come and that it would be good news. And he demonstrated the nature of this kingdom by healing the sick and pronouncing forgiveness of sins and sharing table with sinners. And he casted out demons and he embraced tax collectors and the broken and the hurting. And he invited all hearers in his ministry to leave the realities of the old way of doing things and to come into the realities of the new possibilities that the coming kingdom of God offers to all. See, Advent's about newness. It's about God offering us hope in a world where we often misplace our hope with principalities and powers that are incapable of giving it to us. It's, it's about a restored world where self-giving love rather than self-serving love rules the day. It's an alternative world where abiding peace is possible in the midst of fear and anxiety. 
It's a world where unending joy can flow from the fullness of God's presence if just we would see that he has come and is always coming because he is coming again. See, for those of us who celebrate Christmas, this is actually the world for which we wait. The world where all that has been made wrong in the world will once again be made right. Where there will be no more violence and war and sickness and anxiety and isms and separations and categories of belonging. This is the world for which we wait, even as the war with Christmas continues. And we wait with hope. We wait in peace and in joy and in love in a world filled with the vice of politics and the suffering of people like in Libya, the violence of poverty despite the abundance of wealth, the sheer weight of brokenness that arises from the death-dealing grip of the pursuit of power. We need Advent in order to remember. We need to remember to trust that God is at work in the world. We need to remember that through the coming of the long-expected King Jesus, God's people have always been invited Him into joining Him there in making that world tangible. Even as we wait, watchfully and discerningly, into the world that is and is to come. And in the meantime, we can know that we are at war with Christmas. It rages on and it rages on and each one of us is playing a part. See, the repentance aspect of Advent that we talked about now comes in recognizing that you and I are at war with Christmas when we struggle to accept that we are accepted and loved just as we are, not as we should be. That shame and that guilt that we feel, that's just the war raging on within us. That's the war with Christmas. God loves you and accepts you just as you are, not as you should be. But we're also at war with Christmas when we fail to remember that God loves us too much to leave us as we are and wants to transform us into who we can be. See, you and I are at war with Christmas. Every time God's Spirit opens up an opportunity to reconcile with those who think differently, act differently, live differently, and vote differently than us, but we choose instead prejudice or partisanship or bitterness and walk away. That's when we're at war with Christmas. You and I are at war with Christmas every time God's Spirit compels us to extend generosity and hospitality toward the least, last, left out, and lonely. And we instead choose to side with the dominant voice of American society that tells us everybody just needs to fend for themselves. That's when we're at war with Christmas. You and I are at war with Christmas when the command of Jesus to love our neighbor and our enemies is so lost on us that we become offended when the person at the checkout counter smiles and just simply says, have a happy holidays. That's when we're at war with Christmas. See, like the people of Israel awaiting the announcement Christmas brings, we too find ourselves in the midst of waiting and also as a people in exile, a people of exile in a world where the war with Christmas is happening. And church, when I say exile, I mean it in the way the Apostle Peter means it in his little Advent text. See, Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Read this with me. A holy nation. You hear that language? 
It's there. I'm not making this up. A people, read this with me, for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. There's Peter's homage to Isaiah 9, if you will. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, read this with me. I urge you as strangers and temporary residents, exile. I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that, read this with me, war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will by observing your good works. Your what? Good works. Read this last part with me because it's an Advent thing. Glorify God on the day of visitation, the day of visitation on the final Advent that is to come. See, we are a people living in exile as citizens of the holy nation which is God's kingdom, we are actually strangers living in this United States. Sure, we're earthly citizens, but because of Advent, our home is with God. Wherever God is, there we find our home, and we will find God at home in the kingdom forever. Not in a particular address. See, during Advent, we were reminded that our hearts are actually meant to stay, but meant to stay with God. There is a longing for something more, something not of this world. And the reason we long for it is not because we just can't get to wait to go to heaven when we die. It's because we are feeling the Advent impulses of our exile. We are feeling the draw into the life of the God that knows us best and loves us most and has come for us to set us free into hope and into peace and into joy and into love. And Advent reminds us that in this world, even though we are strangers, God is with us here now and forever. And because of that, because of that tension, because of that exile, we are at war with Christmas, with our fleshly desires that arise from the principalities and the powers of the reign of sin and death, that war against us. So you see, church, there's not so much a war on Christmas as there is a war with it. And it's not about them, whoever the them are, it's about us. And the real war is within you and it's within me. It's the battle that we wage against the powers and principalities prompting us to be like Herod. To yearn for power and privilege and position and greatness. It's the battle within us where we can fear our loss of power and control. Where we can somehow fool ourselves into thinking that the world and the life we want is built by domination or defeating others or telling a bunch of lies. And that's not Advent. That's what Herod did. That's not what Christ has come to teach us. See, it's the battle within 
where we want to live first, but the Advent tells us we can be last because he who is last actually becomes first in the kingdom. See, we can choose to embrace the baby that has come, who Isaiah called the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace. And we can heed his counsel, and we can embrace his peace. Or we cannot. But when we embrace Jesus as king, we discover hope again. We can accept that we are accepted and that my security and my identity is found in who God has called me to be as his child and not in my performance, not in my politics, not in your opinion, not in my job, not in my bank account, but in my Lord. And the same for you. See, when we embrace Jesus as king, we rediscover hope because we can reclaim, we can reclaim our citizenship as people of God's never-ending, never-fragile, never-fickle kingdom because we're people of his possession. You and I are no longer our own. We are God's own, and there is no one better to call us his own. <laughs> this is, this is life-changing when we embrace Jesus as king, we rediscover hope as we can rest in the joy of knowing that even if I grew up without a father or grew up without a mother, I grew up with a father and mother who didn't love me like a father or mother, or even if I lost a child or lost a spouse or lost a brother or lost a sister, that if I rediscover the hope in King Jesus, I see that I've been made a member of the family of God. And when that family is faithful, that family becomes family. And you're going to hear a story in a minute that shows you that but you hear a story every Christmas that should show us that. Embrace the hope, the hope that is, and the hope that is to come. 